The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 285 for Monday, September 13th, 2010. Observers, Mac Geek Gab. I am Dave Hamilton here. It is, as John said, Monday, September 13th. And here we are. How are you doing today, John? Yeah, Monday the 13th. Hmm. Uh, John F. Braun, Fairfield, Connecticut. A cool Fairfield, Connecticut. Yeah. Just from white to fall. Yeah, yeah it's, yeah. it's almost fall. Uh, Almost officially fall anyway. Uh, yeah, so we have, this is our first show back. Uh, actually, our first non-premium show we did a premium show number 284 uh, earlier this month but uh but it's the 13th and it's actually our first show of the month you were on a little bit of vacation john and now we're we're back and rolling here should we uh should we just dive right into it here john no i'm i'm still in vacation mode so i think we should just kick back a little bit and you know uh no we got to get right into it because uh yeah the questions never stop hmm they do not. All right, Mike. But it's a good thing. Mike, right. That is a good thing. No, we really appreciate your questions. You know what? Why don't we tell our listeners how to get in touch with us? You're going to hear, if this is your first time listening to the Mac Geek Cab, what we do here is, uh, by and large, we answer your questions and share your tips and share our advice with you. Uh, there are times, of course, where we'll pick another topic. Something will happen. John and I will discuss it. Uh, either something general in the news happens or we have something specific happen. But our focus here is not the news. Our focus is answering questions, tech tips and all of that good stuff. So with that in mind, we want to make sure you know how to send your questions in to us. And the way you do that is, well, there's a number of ways you can email us. But that's probably the the single preferred way. And the email goes to feedback at MacGeekGab.com. Now, one thing I'm going to say, Dave, is that this show is all about you. Me? And that's by you, I don't mean awesome. you, Dave. Oh. I mean everyone else who's listening. That's right. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, but I want to make sure that they heard that right and that that was feedback at MacGeekGab.com. That's right. Feedback at MacGeekGab.com. Not only, of course, can you send us text there, but you can also send us uh audio comments that you record with your iPhone. We have lots of people that do that uh, or really anything that you, you record either audio video screenshots, whatever helps explain the issue. Try to be concise. Cause we're going to, the, the goal of course is for us to read your comment or play your comment on the air, uh, so to speak, and then answer it or share our uh, results or at the very least put it out there and say, Hey, does anyone uh, have any further information? So, that's uh, feedback at MacGeekGab.com. You can phone it in, as it were, uh, to 206-666-GEEK, which, John, is 4335. And if you're phoning, don't be operating a... Well, no, it's, it's not the <laughs> safe driving geek app. Though it should be. Pull over. If you think you can drive and talk, you can't. Well, some of you can, but most of you can't. But anyways, that's just been my uh, observation on the highways here, Dave. On the highways. All right. So uh, with that, we will go to an email that Mike wrote in. And right, Mike says, I have an iMac and about two terabyte of files spread across four external hard drive. Uh, my current backup strategy involves both automatic backups with Time Machine and weekly manual backups with SuperDuper. To help simplify my backup process, I want to get a Drobo with four terabytes and use it just for Time Machine. However, I've heard that Drobos can sometimes cause the data on their drives to become corrupted, and it may not be immediately obvious. Do you have any thoughts on this? Could you recommend any software that I could run periodically to compare and verify the backed up files with their originals? Or is there something I could use instead of Time Machine that would both back up and verify my data in one step? Okay, uh, so I've had a Drobo. I, I, I have not heard of widespread corruption on Drobos. I certainly have heard about it happening. Uh, in most cases, I've heard about it being resolved fairly well. Uh, I have a Drobo. I have not heard of this. But wanting to verify your backups is something that is good practice no matter what, even if you aren't expecting any corruption. Uh, the good news is, though, Mike, you don't need any extra software. 
if you're running Time Machine, you already have what you need to verify. Now, it is not automatically part Get of the bank. Yeah. Yeah. And this is one of my complaints about Time Machine, though. I've never seen or heard of this, Dave. Okay. Well, let me let me tell you how it works. Uh, it, it's actually fairly simple. You hold down the option key uh, and you go up to the Time Machine menu in the menu bar. And you'll see uh, that now, instead of saying backup now, you have an option that says verify backups. And it will go through and verify your time machine backups. Now, that's good. I wish there was a way of telling the system to always verify backups, because to me, a backup does not exist until it has been verified. Uh, And time machine isn't entirely clear that your backups haven't been verified. So, uh you know, uh, that, that, that's that's always been one of my complaints. But yes, it is totally possible and, you can do it right now. And you know, I'd like a little more information. So I searched the system help, Dave, which is kind of hit and miss. Okay. And there was no terminology anywhere where I could find backup verification. And I even looked on the console because, as, as you know, there there's just, you know, a bucket of information in the console that almost is always helpful when sure. solving problems. And all I saw was one line. It said backup D, which is the backup or, or time machine process. Yep. And it said running backup verification. I'm like, oh, thanks for the, you know, bucket of information you just gave me there about what exactly are you doing? I mean, is it uh the yeah. thing is, is, oh, and it also takes us. Uh, so for example, I, I tried to run this, Dave. So once I was surprised to find that menu choice, I'm like, oh, well, that's interesting. At least on my machine, it was going over an hour. Now I have uh, probably about 700 gigs backed up. Okay. I have a one terabyte time capsule and about 250 gigs are free. So it's probably just because it's a huge honk. And I mean, I saw it in the single digits for percentage. Okay. But I'm assuming it's going to do a consistency check. I don't it know. What, a, what, what is it you, doing? If you watch the logs, it does a, a very short consistency consistency check on the on the data itself. And then it starts comparing uh, and on mine, it took less than an hour. Now, there's two factors that probably sped it up. Number one, I'm connecting to my time capsule over gigabit Ethernet on the machine that I tried. So that means and, and I was seeing about you know, I wasn't seeing full gigabit speeds, of course, because the hard drive in the time capsule can't do that. But I was seeing, you know, 20 megabytes a second or something like that. So, I mean, it was it was good speeds. And then uh, I, I, I was, of course, on my internal drive on my MacBook Pro, I have an SSD. So that tends to go a whole lot faster, especially when when you're jumping around and reading all sorts of different files. So uh, but it, it yeah, it took less than an hour. I probably have 200, maybe 300 gigabytes in my current backup of that machine. So le- less data and also going faster, certainly across the network pipe. Because you were doing yours on wireless, correct? Yeah, so that's yeah. always uh, always a problem. Cool. All right, should we move on to Scott here, John? Scott, should we? I had a hmm. Uh, I was thinking because there was talk of verification, but I think pretty much any of the major backup programs, although it's a you know redundant step, any of them once they finish the backup will. Uh, I'm almost positive. I remember it with retrospect, and now oh, I, yeah. I'm not. I, I was just peeking at Carbon Copy Cloner, but I'm sure somewhere it says. Uh, you know, of course, when you burn a CD or DVD, that's already a uh, option, at least yep. in the built-in Mac driver. It says, oh, you want me to read this whole thing back and make sure it's cool. Yep. And I've had it fail sometimes, especially with cheap media. So, yeah, that's um, right. That's right. Yeah. All right. All right. Scott writes, in several recent shows, you have dis- discussed system swap files as they relate to virtual memory. Once you notice that your system is creating and using these swap files, how can I get rid of them? I know a system restart will do it, but... Is there a utility or terminal command I can use to remove these files once I have quit all running applications and want to reclaim this disk space and stop utilizing the virtual memory? Is this even advisable? It would be nice to simply save from a complete system restart. Okay. It's important, and we've talked about this before, but but a brief refresher on what these swap files are. So the system, when it starts up, obviously it has the RAM in your computer available to it, and it starts filling things up into RAM. Uh, the first thing that goes in is Mac OS X, and then, of course, all the related stuff, and then the files or applications that you launch eat up RAM. Eventually, it gets to the point where it decides, I'm going to save some of what's in RAM out to disk uh, to better manage memory, either because it needs more room or, or simply just to free some things up. Those files are critical. 
to the system. Even if you quit an app, there might still be something from the system saved out to a swap file because it moved some currently unused chunk of data out to the hard drive to make more room for your application. So you can't simply quit the apps and then know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there's nothing saved to the hard drive that's going to be needed by the system at a later time. Uh, it's up to the system to manage this stuff. And, and it's usually pretty good though, John uh, it does, as Scott pointed out, re you know recreate these files uh, and and kind of go back to ground zero on reboot but it also just like it will create swap files if it needs them it will destroy them once it's done with them so if you quit all your apps sit let the system sit for a little bit it mm. it will remanage things it may not get all the way back down to zero in fact in most cases it won't but you will get somewhere in there uh, you know, where where you'll see it start destroying some and, and getting better at, uh, yeah. you know, better at managing. I've seen that. And if I wanted to see that, Dave, I'd probably look in slash private slash var slash VM for virtual memory, of course. And you will see in that directory, Dave, well, a couple of things. First, you're going to see files. I believe there's swap zero, I believe, is the first one. It's called swap file zero. but yep. Swap file zero, yep. then one, then two, and, and so on. So yep. So you can... But, but I'm going to say here, Dave, this is almost like an MC Hammer moment. Can't touch this. <laughs> Look, but do not touch. You can watch the files being created and destroyed. But um, I don't know. I, I don't even think normally like you could try to put the hammer down and do an RM, Dave. But uh, I'm almost certain. I think I tried it once just to see what happened. And it's just going to say, no, well, it's going to say permission denied because I think you need a pseudo for that. Then it's going to be like, even then it's going to be like, what are you nuts? Yeah. I'm using this. Um, yeah, it, it may not, even if you, you do it with an, a privileged user, which would, as you said, would be necessary. It's still, I don't think it would let you remove these files. And, and John, you said you can look at them in, in, in private var VM. That's not a directory you can navigate to normally. You can get there in the terminal, but there's an easier way uh, in the finder. You go to the finder. You go tell. To, you go to the go menu at the top of the finder. You say go to folder and you can actually, here's a trick for you. You can even skip the, the private part. You can just put in slash var slash VM. They are sim linked to one another and with the, <sighs> the same. So you just go to var VM and then you'll see these two, you know, well in my machine, there are two, uh, but uh, at currently there will be more if I keep loading up apps and, uh, and doing all sorts of things, but there might be another file you see out there, John, correct? You know, if I, if I saw another file there, Dave, I think it probably would be called Sleep Image. Mm -hmm. And um, I bet you I know what that is. Well, do you, do you <laughs> want to tell them or shall I? Well, that's the... Uh, so if you set up your computer, and by default, I believe the MacBooks are set up to, to do a, what we call a hibernate. Right. And this is only portable machines that will do this by default, I believe. I believe you can... Uh, like, there's something called Smart Sleep. Yeah. Uh, which I use because it kind of intelligently does this because I personally don't like, because in my case now I have. Uh, hang on, hang on, hang You're bouncing all over the place, John. Answer, tell them what the sleep image file is. Sleep image is when your machine hibernates. It's and when what's, your what's machine. Hibernate? hibernate is a mode where it basically saves everything in RAM to a file on disk and then the machine goes to sleep. What happens with this file? It's. But it doesn't just it go to can sleep. Be. It, it shuts off. Right. I mean, it's, it's important to note the difference. Between right. When, when I'm using smarts, I'm sorry, I use smart sleep so I don't shut off. Right. In that I sleep. But, you know, you're absolutely correct. Normal behavior when you shut the machine down is let me save this backup of RAM to well, the sleep image file. No, no, no. Or RAM okay. image. There's there's three things that can happen. Right. If assuming your computer is not on. Right. One is that it can go to sleep, which means it's actually still drawing a little bit of power. To keep right. everything in RAM in RAM, right? If you pull power from the RAM of our computers, it goes, whatever was in RAM goes away. Uh, so that's number one. Number two is what you described as hibernate, where we take the contents of RAM and save it as one thing in this file called sleep image. And boom, it goes right to the disk. If you have two gigs of RAM, that file will be two gigs in size. If you have four mm -hmm. gigs, it will be four gigs. And then the machine shuts down when it starts back up. If it sees this sleep image file and it's set right, 
Uh, it will simply right. refresh RAM from that file and it's awake. And then, of course, the third option is you just shut down. And if you choose shut down, that's what right. will happen. Right. So so the, and, and, and you're right, though, by default, when a Mac goes to sleep, it saves this sleep image file, even though it's not hibernating yet. It does it in yeah. case it runs out of battery power while it's asleep. And then it's got this file from which to recover. Right. Now, if you want to save that valuable time that it spends, because I was actually shocked the first time I saw this, where I tried to put someone's new machine to sleep. And because I was using smart sleep, I would put the lid down and I saw the LED on the latch stay on for a really long time before it started pulsing. I'm like, what is it doing? Yep. I know exactly what it was doing, because that's the default, as we pointed out. It was writing whatever, four gigs of ram to a disk file and that takes space especially if you got fragmentation and all that it could take qu quite a bit of time right i personally disable that feature because i find it unnecessary and it just wastes time i don't, I don't know if you're a big smart sleep fan or I, I am i was going to ask you know how do you disable it and it, you're right you use smart sleep which is a third party i believe it's freely available preference pane that lets you configure when or if the system writes out that sleep image file uh, you can say, look, don't write the sleep image file out if I have more than 10 percent of my battery left. Uh, and, that you know, you say, well, I don't think I'm going to need it. Or you can say, look, never write it. And if you run out of juice, well, so be it. I ran out of mm -hmm. juice. That's that's, you know, I, I lost whatever I was working on. And that's it. Because the machine, as we said, does draw some power when it's on the uh, when it's when it's when it's asleep as opposed to hibernating or, or, or shut off. Yeah. And. So enough about hibernating. Now, Dave, you know about virtual memory. Yes. Should I even talk about the concept of disabling it? Uh, I have uh, tried that. It's it's. I've not... linked, I I found an article because okay. it sounds like uh, because it takes space, right? Mm -hmm. And hey, if you're you're short on space, actually, actually let's rewind one quick second. That sleep image go. file. If you go in there, even if you're not running Smart Sleep, if you go in there and you decide, hey, uh, I don't want this thing to take up four gigs on my on my uh, hard drive you can delete it now of course unless you do something about it it will create it again the next time you go to sleep but right. uh, but as long once you're up and running my experience has been that it's totally safe to delete the sleep image file so likewise okay yeah so now, i think i think it's only accessed yeah when the machine's shutting down or trying to start up right so. right so now go go ahead john with uh with your your virtual memory because you're right it does take up space on the hard drive well, no, I, I found a link to it. I, I don't know if it was Mac OS 10 hints, but it, it was an article that described how to disable the creation of swap files. You can certainly do this, though it's not a good idea. Right. But well, I, I, will, I will link to the article just for, for technical interest. Yeah. Because the there may be a crazy reason where you, you don't want to swap, though. I don't know why. I, I, I think I'm with you, Dave, in that you hint that, you know, the computer's just kind of taking care of this. It's eventually going to get to a, a nice state, you know, as far as getting rid of things that aren't necessary. So, you know, just trust, trust Mac OS 10 on this one, right? <laughs> Including not disabling. So, so again, it'll be of technical interest. I, I don't know if I'd, it could even imagine a reason that you'd want to disable the creation of uh, virtual memory. And it's, it's setting some system thing, like some pager uh, uh, setting. Anyways, I'm not going to talk about it because I, it, it I, can only bring grief. Well, yeah, and I've seen the grief. Unless you've tried and want well, to let me know I did. what the grief yeah. is. Yeah, I did. Um, and I did this not with Snow Leopard. I think it was Leopard, so Mac OS 10.5. So it's possible that the grief will be different now. But what happened was, you know, Mac OS 10 assumes that it's going to have the ability to have access to an infinite amount of RAM, that there is no hard limit. Well, when you disable virtual memory you, you've created a hard limit where one is not expected and there is no way to tell the system hey uh you're gonna have to do something different because you don't have access to this so it works fine for a while and of course it's nice and speedy because it's never saving anything uh you know out to disk as virtual memory but as soon as it hits the point where it needs that and it needs to manage that that it, you just kernel panic that's it it just you know totally oh. falls apart yeah yeah, so it's bad. It's very bad. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, I want to talk about our spur, our, our spurst. <laughs> it is our spurst. That's a new word. That's our first sponsor, uh, which is Smile, uh, formerly Smile on my Mac. They just released 
PDF Pen 5.0. It adds a couple of cool things. Now, PDF Pen is an excellent utility to be able to manage PDF files. You can, uh, like you can in preview, you can edit pages, what pages you have and move them around. You can combine PDFs. You can also edit and add the add to the content of pages on a PDF. And this is where it really shines. Uh, I wind up using it a lot for signing documents. I have a scan of my signature that I save uh, on my hard drive as a graphic file. And then I just take that and I paste it in to PDF pen on the page where I want to, you know, sign the document. I move it around. I can make it bigger or smaller, depending on how big the signature area is. Then I can use their text tools to uh, essentially type in the date. And now I can save it back out as a new PDF and it's totally signed and ready to go. And I never had to print, you know, sign with scan fax, you know, copy, whatever. It's all right there. PDF pen five adds some interesting enhancements, actually very cool enhancements. 10.6 now only. So it ha- it requires snow leopard and it's full 64 bit, which is great. Definitely forward thinking. Uh, it has an OCR engine in it, which it's had for a while, meaning that it can take the text on a page if it's a scanned page and turn it into actual font editable text. Uh, now that OCR engine has support for multiple processors or multiple cores, uh, you can erase or, as they like to call it, redact text. You can do a search and replace for text in the PDF now, which is very, very cool. So if you've got something you want to change throughout a PDF, you can do it very similar to the way you would do it in your word processor. Uh, If you've got a trackpad, you can now use that to do pinch to zoom. So it's supporting some some of those multi-touch gestures and uh, it's very, very cool stuff. Much faster than before. Of course, there's a free trial. You go to smilesoftware.com. You can download a free trial when you are ready to buy. Uh, it's 60 bucks for PDF pen, $59.95. Actually, you save a nickel off of the $60 price. And they have a 90-day money-back guarantee. So you simply can't go wrong. Go ahead and check it out. Smilesoftware.com, PDF pen. Uh, and, of course, it's, it's Big Brother PDF pen pro. Uh, all at smilesoftware.com. All right, John, it's time to move on to... Well, a very interesting question. Yeah, we don't know who we don't know who sent this in, but uh, but that's okay. That's not going to stop us from trying our best to answer it. Hey, John and Dave, Um, I've heard that in your um, troubleshooting, you guys create new accounts to check to see if your your account is bad, and I found that to be true. Um, I tried moving everything over. I had a huge issue with permissions and. So I was wondering, what is the right way to move everything? Because you're probably flinching as soon as I say this, but I moved everything through the public folder, which meant that the permission stayed intact. So I was wondering, how would you do this to where all your files would have the correct permissions for your user account, but not carry over all the junk that you all the cruff and so on and so forth that you have? I know copying it out to an external drive is the best way, but I don't really have an external drive that I can spare to fit all that information on. Um, I guess this is where you cut me off. All right. And you've been cut off. All right. So, uh, John, I feel like I'm on, uh, I'm on like a, a radio station with a phone interview and somebody asked me a question. And the first thing I'm tempted to do is answer the question. But really what I need to do here is reject the premise. Uh, and by that, I mean, well, what's the question? I, I feel like we got dropped in the middle of of an event here. OK, so I'll explain wh- what I'm hearing going on. So he has taken our advice, which is if you're seeing. Negative or undesirable behavior on your Mac, one thing to do is to create a test user account. So that is to create another user account that you haven't installed any preferences or anything into just a you know totally clean account and try to do whatever it is uh, is not working properly for you in one user account and the other and the reason for this is to see if your problem is specific to your user account or if it happens in both your existing and your new user account 
uh, mm-hmm. or your new test user account. Well, then, you know, it's system wide and it guides you. It informs you as to how to further troubleshoot the problem. What what our friend here has done is he found that this other user account didn't have a problem. And so he just he stopped troubleshooting and has now started migrating all of his data over. Th- that is that's not what's happening. Yes, that's not the right. Th- that's the premise I will reject. <laughs> you, you need to keep troubleshooting at this point. M- migrating all your data over may or may not solve your problem. You may find that once you move everything over, all your apps and your preferences and all that stuff, that you're left with the same problem you had before. And you've spent a lot of time duplicating a bad thing. So you you need to keep troubleshooting down here. Uh, And, 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 and we don't know what the problem was. So of course we, we can't really offer any advice uh, as to how to continue troubleshooting. Um, but what it does tell me, Dave, though, is that it is most likely something in home slash system slash library versus slash system slash library where. But it wouldn't be system library. It would be home library. Very rarely are we impacting things in system library. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's no, you're right. home library or, or just the main library folder. But you're right. Yeah, it's definitely inside that home tree. Uh, almost certainly. But it could be a preference. It could be permissions. It could, you know, again, we don't know what the what the actual root problem is. So, you know, we can't speculate on what it what it would be. Uh, That said, to move things over, if you really wanted to do it and you don't have an external hard drive, creating a disk image would be yet another way to do this. So you copy everything to your disk image, mount the disk image in the other user and copy it back. Mm-hmm. Again, you know, I'm not recommending that here, but if you needed to get things over without inheriting permissions, that would be the way to do it. Uh, you know, and that's yeah. that's my story on this one. Jim. I think I'm with you. We need uh, that. That's why I said I felt like we got dropped in the middle of a, a diagnostic activity. Well, it, and so and what, we, beha- what what we need to know to 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 assure a satisfied customer is. What was the problem to begin with? Well, not necessarily. No. I'm, well, we, I'd like to know. Yeah, it, it's right. There's curious, curiosity. But a lot of what we do here is, of course, we try to teach how best to troubleshoot. And and clearly with with this particular person, we 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 failed to convey the proper message. So so for clarity's sake, to say it one more time, uh, the purpose of using a test user account is to inform future or further troubleshooting steps. And in this case, as as you said, John, and and as I'll say again here, the problem is inside your user account. And now you need to keep going. You, you know, you got yeah. to narrow it down there. And I again, you know, we, we won't speculate as to what it was. If you want to send us the, the problem, send it in. We're happy to uh, to share our thoughts on on what you've got going on specifically. So. All right. On to uh, on to Chadwick, John. Indeed. Hey, John and Dave, this is Chadwick from Columbus, Ohio. Just finished listening to episode 281, where you were discussing kind of some battery issues, and it just reminded me of an issue I've been having um, with my MacBook Pro. It's a 15-inch. It's pretty, it's, it's pretty old, maybe it's three or four years old. It's not the unibody or anything like that. But uh, here recently, it, uh, the, ba- the battery on it just died. I mean, it just wasn't, it wouldn't hold a charge at all, um, and it was way out of warranty, of course. So um, I took it into the, the Apple store here in Columbus and uh, they looked at it. Yeah, it's dead. It's out of warranty. You're going to have to buy a new battery. I'm like, that's cool. I'll do that. I paid 125 bucks or whatever it was for a new battery. Took it back um, to the office and plugged it all in and um, booted up fine work. What's funny now, though, is that the battery only, uh, it, it's still not, the battery's fine. It says that it, it, it takes a full charge. But man, if I take that thing off the power, um, it only lasts for about 45 minutes, if that. I mean, it's almost like I can see the percentage not coming down from 100% to 90% to 70%. I mean, just it just sucks it down faster than you can't believe, and then it, and then I have to plug it back in. Um, I reset the PRAM. I reset the the, uh, the SMC. I think it's called or something like that, where you take the battery out and you hold down the power button for a few minutes, or or you know if you set seconds or whatever. Um, so I've done everything that I, that I could think to do. And I'm assuming since I just bought the bat, this new battery, that it's okay. I mean, I guess it's possible that it's still a, that it's a bad, bad battery, 
but because the machine's so old and I was having issues before, I'm thinking that it's probably something w- with the, the machine rather than being, um, you know, a bad battery right out of the box. I've also done a clean, I just recently done a clean install of Snow Leopard. And so I'm just, I'm totally at a loss as to why, you know, is it possible that a machine could just get so old that it just forgets how to deal with a battery? Um, I don't know, just something to throw throw out there and uh, appreciate the show and uh, hope to hear from you soon. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Thanks, Chadwick. Very interesting, John. Uh, I'll let you take this one. You, you yeah. Can, yeah. Go oh, I'm with you. No, we got a few places to look here. So yeah. one in our pre-show discussion, and I think this is a valuable piece of information to understand or quantify battery issues. One thing you may want to know, and I'm going to toss in something I hadn't thought of, but uh, so one thing that I did find if you get a tool that you could either use System Profiler, so System Profiler offers this, also iStat Menus does, uh, but it's the same figure here. What you want to look at, so, so one thing you want to look at when you're trying to figure out these power problems is how much current am I drawing? Active. Now why would you, why would you want to, why would you want to ask that question? Well, because if you look at a battery, a battery has a certain amount of capacity or the OS will go to the battery and say how much there's actually a little, very tiny computer in the battery that helps it advertise and measure these figures. But one thing that the battery knows is how much time or power it has left. And this is based in milliamp hours. Hmm. You know what, Dave? Milliamp hours. You know what? I bet you in one hour, <laughs> if you take that figure, no, that's what that figure means. So in one hour, you will, you will consume you know, that, that amount of milliamp hours. Now you can tie this to another figure you can get, which is how much current or amperage is your computer drawing at the moment in time. And you can either get it through a system profiler or something like that menus. Like for example, mine right now, you know, in general, this is something that could help you determine what ways that you use your computer, or what devices or what features cause the greatest current draw. And this is just a good thing in general. Part of it is RF, Wi-Fi, or Bluetooth take up power. The screen brightness takes up power. Having drives running when they could be asleep takes up power. Running the DVD drive takes up power. All sorts of things. And if you play around with this, you can look at the value and try to determine, well, what am I doing? So mine earlier in the day of Dave was reading, well, right now it's reading about negative 1,400 milliamps. Okay. So that's how much current is being drawn currently from the battery. So in one hour, of course, 14 whatever milliamp hours would be right. sucked out of the battery, I would assume. Okay. So you, and I think that's how it calculates that figure. It keeps looking at both of those. All right, how much current is being drawn and how much current does the battery say it has left? And it's like, well, if I compare those two, that's how much time you got left. Sure. Okay. So, uh, John, you mentioned a big uh, and, and you said at this point, yours is drawing about 1400 uh, milliamps. Yeah, earlier was drawing about, uh, and it shows it as negative because it's right. a drain on the battery. If you have the power plugged in, it's going to show, I think, the amount of power entering the battery, and it'll okay. be positive. So so actually seeing a negative sign before that figure indicates to you that, yes, the battery is being depleted, and that's how much power is being uh, drawn from it, at that, or current being drawn at that point in time. Right. Okay, so you're seeing 1,400 now. So that uh, that's a, a good, safe baseline at least for your machine which is the early 2008 macbook pro we don't know what uh what chadwick has but i think you could probably look around and you know ask on some online forums maybe if you need to get a a benchmark for your specific uh machine you could ask in the in the mac geek forum in fact uh, at macobserver.com that said uh john you gave a big long list of all the things that draw power, but I'm going to add one thing to that. And that is going to be the mm. CPU. So oh, of the, course the processor, uh, y- you know, draws a variable amount of power depending on how much you're using it. So if the processor is at, and you can look at this in either activity monitor, which is in applications, utilities, or if you have something like iStat menus installed, you can see it right there in your menu bar. If you've got something that for whatever reason is eating 100% of the CPU all the time, your machine's going to draw a lot more power and have a much shorter battery life because of that than it would if you were operating it, you know, approximately, you know, 
let's say five to 30% draw on a normal sure. average kind of thing. So, so that that's, you know, that's something else I'd look at Chadwick is just, just make sure you don't have some process running away and chewing up tons and tons of processor time. Uh, that, that, that's really the, uh, you know, USB devices. If you've got stuff plugged into your machine and you're powering or fi- well, firewire, firewire too. Yep. Well, firewire, cause firewire provides the juice in that it, it so, so does provides, USB. Oh, no, I'm saying FireWire provides more of the juice. Got it. Yes, right. And the last I said, last I checked, FireWire is capable of handling more power than USB, yep. uh, which is good and bad. I mean, I always liked it because I had some drives that would not run on USB. It, it had to be FireWire. The downside is because it's providing more power, that'll suck your battery dry even quicker. So, you know, that that's, no, that's a great suggestion. Another strategy. If you have a choice between... USB and FireWire, you may want to use a, a USB device, assuming it can be powered and it's not a total dog yeah. uh, versus a FireWire thing uh, when you're thinking about battery power. Yep. So hopefully that helps, Chadwick. As far as your question about could a machine get so old that it forgets how to uh, properly manage hmm. power? Well, it's yeah, it's not going to forget. Right. But it is, well, it is possible that your motherboard uh, has a problem that's that's making it not able to properly manage power but that would be a specific you know it's it's not just going to gradually get there i I don't think so what i was going to suggest dave is is as a matter of fact the computer can get so old that it starts forgetting things and how is that well the way it is and i believe your your machine and my machine were one of the last that had this but there is a i'm going to call it a bios backup battery not in the portables uh some of them before ours not for a long time. We haven't had, we've had batteries in the desktop machines, but not in the portables. Uh, I think I, 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 I could to. be mistaken here, but I, I don't I think, think you had, are. I'm going to, I'm going to search. All right, cool. <laughs> uh, what I want to do is talk about our, well, actually I don't want to talk about our second sponsor. I'm well, going <laughs> to let, I'm going to let one of you talk about our second sponsor, which is circusponies.com. And their notebook product, Notebook, is an electronic, well, it's an electronic notebook. It allows you to create multiple notebooks electronically on your computer to organize all your data. I'm going to let uh, let our friend here talk about this, and then we'll, uh, we'll fill in some of the details when he's done. Hey, John and Dave. Um, I am a 14-year-old geek, and uh, I was listening to one of the Mac Geek Gads and finally decided that check out the 30-day free trial of Notebook from Circus Ponies. Um, I just downloaded it two days ago, and I have to tell you, it is amazing. I am definitely going to buy it. Um, I am So I'm trying to teach myself Objective-C and uh, programming on the Mac, and it is so fantastic for keeping all my notes and all my programs and everything all in one place where I can easily access them rather than my hastily scribbled sticky notes on my desk. So... I am, this is definitely going to be one of my go-to pieces of software. So thanks for turning me on to Notebook from Circus Ponies. Bye. And thanks for your comment. That, this is fantastic, right? This is exactly one of, it's not the only use case, of course. But yeah, if you're, if you're in the process of learning something, either taking a class or teaching it to yourself, you're going to need to create notes. And those notes aren't just text. They're going to be snippets of text, maybe a PDF from somewhere. You know, he might go and find uh, a web page that uh, that he wants to save so he can PDF that and put it all into that same notebook from uh, inside uh, Circus Pony's notebook. And then he can search. It remembers what day you added and edited items. Absolutely fantastic. So as he said, there is a 30 day free trial. Uh, you can get that at CircusPonies.com. And then once you're ready to buy, it's forty nine ninety five U.S., uh, if you are a student, it's only twenty nine ninety five. So I think our friend here would certainly qualify for that. Uh, and again, you can see all of this at circusponies.com. John, before I move on to a question from Dave, not me, but another Dave is, uh, do you have any, any follow-up information yet on the battery thing? Or are we going to have to wait to, for a future show on that? No, we're going to have to wait. Okay. No problem. No problem. All right. Uh, Dave has a question about mail. Hey, John and Dave. I have a friend who ran into a perplexing issue, and I was equally confused. When she opened Mail.app, she noticed the preview pane stopped showing the content of an email message. 
And if she quit Mail.app and reopened it, sometimes the preview of the email would reappear. I tried to think about what would cause Mail.app to sometimes show the preview and sometimes not. I, I tried rebuilding the mailbox, uh, running some system maintenance tools on Onyx. No luck. Love your thoughts. Please cut me off. <laughs> All right. Uh, and you have been cut off. So uh, this is interesting, John. Um, and I'm not, I'm not sure what's going on. I have seen behavior like this. If you're using IMAP, right? Uh, IMAP allows you to sync your mail with a server. Mac supports this. Gmail now supports this. Uh, some other email services do. Some don't. Uh, and what I've seen when you sync with an IMAP server, the first thing it does is it brings down only the headers of all the messages and then it fills in the details. So I have seen where I'll click on a message and I'll see, okay, a message from, you know, John Braun. Here's the date that it was sent. It was sent to me. I click on it and it's empty because the message has not yet finished downloading. So what I would check is if you go into mail in the window menu, there's an option called activity. And when you click that, it will bring up a little, uh, another little window that shows you everything that mail is doing either in the foreground or the background and give you some insight into what's going on. If there's nothing in the window, then it means that mail is sitting idle and not doing any uh, data transfer. It's not sending any messages out. It's not pulling any data in. So, that's what I would do is I would click on the message and look at that activity window. If, if mail is showing blank in the message and blank in the activity window, then it means that there's some sort of problem. But if it's showing in the activity window, downloading message and it'll even give you the subject of it while it's pulling it down, then it might just be that you've got a slow connection to your mail server. And, and maybe that's something to look into. Uh, so that, that would be one step. The other, which I think you've already done is, uh, is to rebuild mail's envelope index, but uh, which can be done with Onyx. You can also do it from the command line. We can link to it, uh, link to a, I think there's a Mac OS 10 hints article that we've linked to in the past. And we can link to again, it shows you how to rebuild it. It's a one, uh, one step, you know, line that you type into the terminal and off you go. But, uh, but Onyx will also do it and it keeps you from having to muck around in the terminal and potentially type the wrong character and then get it wrong. So, but that other, otherwise that's, I'm hoping it's it's a an activity thing and, and that there's just too many tasks queued. It could also be maybe your connection to the IMAP server is fine, but uh, but there's, you know, five tasks queued ahead of getting this this one male you know body. And so it has not yet filled that in and it can't be until it does these other five tasks. There's a little stop sign next to any active task in mail's activity window and you can stop them. Uh, you know, if it was trying to trash a message and you tell it to stop it, well, it's not going to trash the message. Same is true as if you're trying to send it. So, you know, use that judiciously, but certainly could work. Any thoughts, John? Uh, the only thing I can imagine is now I've, I've seen in some mail messages something saying there are images here, by the way, but I'm sure that that that's just to mention it as an option. So sometimes you'll, you'll get emails that are entirely images. I don't know why they do that. Oh, that's true. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, and sometimes you get yep. a uh, so you may get an email message which appears to not have fully loaded because uh, I think in general mail I, th I think the default setting is if it sees big wampin graphics in an email it's like well, uh, I don't know if it's spam or or whatever. Yeah. So. Yep. Yep. All right. Uh, let's see uh, where are we going here? Should we go with uh, let's go with Anthony here? This is a this is an interesting question with uh, an even more interesting solution. Hey, John and Dave, this is Anthony from the Bronx again. I'm an avid listener, premium subscriber, love the show, and want to thank you a whole bunch for it again. Um, my problem is I have a 27-inch iMac, which is absolutely beautiful, and I recently bought a refurbished 24-inch Apple LCD display, Apple LED display, excuse me. I hooked them up. They work beautifully. The problem I'm having that I don't know if it's really a problem, but I'm trying to make all the speakers work at the same time, the two speakers in the iMac and the two speakers in the 24-inch um, LCD display. Um, it's, not, uh, it's not wanting to work. It seems that if I can only pick between one or the other, do you guys know of any application or workaround with some command line scrutinization that would make this work for me? 
um, I appreciate any help you can give me. Yeah, this is where you cut me off. Awesome. All right. So, Anthony, my first instinct here was to go to a piece of software that I have used many times, and that is Audio Hijack Pro. And it will let you do this. Uh, it's important to note that what you can't do uh, at this point on the Mac is have your internal speakers active while you have something plugged into the headphone output port. However, in this case, essentially what you've got, Anthony, is a USB audio device. It just happens to be that it's baked into a monitor, but it is a separate audio device and is addressable independently of the Mac's built-in audio. So in that case, you could use Audio Hijack Pro, uh, and what you do is you capture the audio either from the entire system or not capture it, you hijack the audio from the entire system uh, or from specific application and then uh, use what they call an alternate device output effect, which lets you route that audio to multiple places. And it works totally fine. Uh, I asked Paul Kafasis, the CEO of Rogue Amoeba, about this because I thought, you know, there's there, I, I feel like there's a simpler way. And but I just don't know what that is. Maybe I, th- I thought it was another product of theirs. Of course, Paul wrote back uh, and Paul had a very interesting answer. He said, uh, much as I'd like to sell one of our apps, there is a much simpler way built into the OS. There's an application inside the utilities folder. So applications, utilities, it's called audio MIDI setup. And what it, one of the things it will allow you to do is create an aggregate audio device, which does exactly what it sounds like. You you open up the uh, audio window, and if it's not up when you open Audio MIDI Setup, you go to the window menu, choose Show Audio Window, and then at the bottom of that window, you'll see a little plus sign. You click the plus sign, and it will create what it calls an aggregate device. Now, you can rename this. Uh, and then you go through and check and you say use and you say, I want to use my built in output and my USB output. And you check them both at the same, you know, in the same list. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then you go to your sound preference pane and you choose this aggregate device as your output device. Oh, so normally you will see the individual, which I think is what he's seeing. So he's seeing yeah. iMac speakers as one device and then display speakers or whatever it names it as the other device. Unfortunately, you can't click on both. Right. Right. Yeah. There's no so, multiple select in that particular window, which to me would seem to be the right way to do it. But I don't even know the horror of audio. And yet you've given me a peek at times, Dave. So <laughs> uh, 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 the, from a user standpoint, I'm like, that'd be the easiest way to do it is just highlight all the output devices in the sound preference. Yep. And there you go. So, so this gives you a device that's a, a aggregate device, and you know, hopefully, you name it properly so you can. Huh? Who yeah. would have known? Going because what does it have to do with MIDI? Nothing really, right? Nothing. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So it's well, it's audio and MIDI setup. I think is is what I the see. App, you know, uh, in the end. But yeah, yeah. And this th- these aggregate devices work totally fine, and you can you know configure them up and and do it, and it and it'll work. So there you go. You can even I think you can even configure the speakers uh, and adjust the relative levels there. So, mm-hmm. you know, you can, yeah, you can you can do some interesting things. So definitely check it out. Audio MIDI setup. Uh, if you want to do more, as I said, Audio Hijack Pro is is the magic answer. So thanks. Uh, thanks, Anthony. And, and, and thanks, Paul, for uh, for turning us in the right direction here. All right, let's do. We have one more question that I think we have time for today. And let me pull it up here. Let's, see, message, let's right? see what Steve says. G'day, John and Dave and Pilot Pete. This is Steve in King Lake, Australia. In 2009, we had fires go through here and our place was burned. We managed to save our house. But in the Good. in the lead up to that, we managed to save all of our backups because my backups are all on external drives. And it really brought home to me the need for good backups. 
That's not the main reason for my call. Uh, actually, my son is a bit of a hog in uh, internet bandwidth, and I was listening to John when he was talking on one of the other podcasts, I think it was the Mac Roundtable podcast, about throttling back bandwidth. And that really um, uh, triggered a little bit of a light bulb in my mind. And I thought, if you could perhaps go through how we can throttle back the bandwidth, particularly with one particular user, if we know the machine address for his computer, that would be absolutely brilliant. Now, I'm not particularly geekish. I don't mind messing around in the terminal. I don't mind getting into the uh, controls of my modem. We're on ADSL2 here in Kinglake. Um, but the amount of information that I know about ports and tunnels and all of that sort of thing can be written on the head of a pin with a crayon. So um, some sort of step-by-step guide on how to do it would be appreciated. If you can point me to somewhere I can print out this guide or if you can uh, let me know on the podcast, which I listen to avidly and really enjoy listening to it. Um, I'd really appreciate it. Love the show and uh, look forward to response. Cheers. You bet, Steve. So we, we've been through this before. And frankly, what we found is that a discussion about limiting bandwidth from the terminal uh, in a in a spoken word podcast like we do here is 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 simply not all that helpful. It It, it is much better to read along uh, and do this. But we can talk a little bit in general and then point you to some yes. links. Uh, so th- there's a couple things to talk about initially. Number one is that in order to limit an entire uh, max bandwidth uh, and without touching that Mac, of course, you'd need to do it from your router. Uh, an entire user's bandwidth. You have to do that from the router. And and so that's one way to do it. The other is to install some software on that Mac, but it requires touching the Mac. And it, of course, means that that software could be uninstalled uh, if your son knows how and has access to uh. do that. Right. So uh, the, the, the best way to do it on a router, Apple's routers do not support the ability to manage bandwidth on a per client basis. But uh, but there's there's a third piece of third party software that we have talked about before called DDWRT. It's at dd-wrt.org and or dd-wrt.com rather. Uh, And it has a lot of features, one of which is the ability to do this. Installing this software on a third party, again, not Apple router, is often possible, but sort of geeky. Uh, It's doable, though. However, Buffalo Technology sells a couple of routers now that come with this software pre-installed. So if you want to do this, they're priced well. That's the way I would, that's that's what I would do for getting uh, uh-huh. this DD, DD Wirt software. So that's that's number one. Okay. Number two would be to use a piece of software uh, called, there's there's actually two. One is called Throttle D Pro, which will allow you to manage the, the bandwidth Again, on a computer, you can't install something on your computer that manages his bandwidth because his bandwidth doesn't go through your computer. Uh, but you can install Throttle D Pro on there, or you can install a piece of software called Waterroof, which will Throttle D Pro does its own thing. Waterroof actually uses it, kind of manages the command line for you, and will allow you to do a lot of different things. One of which is setting up uh, a bandwidth tunnel or. Uh, um, and that, that's really what it is, John. You, you can talk a little bit about this. I mean, again, it. You, I'm going to talk a little bit. So, yeah. so the so the statement that you need something else to do this is not entirely correct because I bet you didn't know this, Dave. No, you did, of course. There is a so if you want to limit bandwidth, one way to do it is to actually use, I would say, a little known feature of the firewall that's built into Mac OS X called IPFW. And you can basically issue two commands from the terminal. They're pseudo commands. One will configure the parameters for what we're going to call a network pipe. And one of the parameters is BW or bandwidth. So you can say, and I verified this. So one parameter, you say, here's something I'm calling a pipe. And I want to limit it to whatever, 250K per second. Then another command, which is also an IPFW command, 
basically binds that to a particular port. Now, this is where, and I know Steve mentioned this, he may not be too hip as to what ports are used for what. I would say for the most part, port 80, a lot of things use that. Hopefully FTP or whatever. So 80 is HTTP, which if you're concerned about things being done with a web browser or through a web browser, even a lot of file transfers with a web browser are through port 80. Um, this would be a way to do it. I'm going to link to an article that talks about this. But the thing is, you can get this for free, and I suspect some of the other products you mentioned, Dave, may hinge on this feature that is built in, or they may do their own thing, as you suggested. Though these are both commands that, yeah, Waterroof would let you issue or configure to be set up at, at startup time. Right. I think that's all we got to say about this. So, so that you can definitely do it. I, I would agree with you, Dave, that you should be doing this on the router, but... You know, either through cost or complexity, you can, if you know a certain computer is always going to be used for purpose X, like downloading stuff, then it could be appropriate. Though it's a, it's a management nightmare if you get, you know, anywhere beyond a couple of machines. But it sounds like this may be doable. It, it's certainly an option. Yeah, so. what, Waterroof creates, it, it, Waterroof takes, it takes advantage of exactly the functionality you're talking about, John. It just creates the pipes and, and tunnels for you. Uh, it, it essentially builds the command lines for you and then executes them. What's cool about Waterroof uh, is that it shows you all your options. So, it, it again, it's a little geeky, but it's less geeky than doing it from the terminal. One thing I wanted to correct, though, is you don't have to limit it. You can limit it to a port, but you can also limit it to an interface. So, yes, yeah, so it can be. Uh, I like that a system, Better. a system wide thing, right? You can say any traffic going out the ethernet port or the airport port, you know, whatever you, whatever, however he's connected. I, I want to limit, I want to send through this, this pipe that now has this bandwidth limit applied to it. So you do exactly what John said. You create the, the pipe with the bandwidth limit. Then you just route all traffic through that. One thing that's important to note though, is that this will not just limit his traffic going to and from the internet. It will limit all of the traffic going out that particular port. Mm. So if you're doing file sharing in the house, he now has limited on file sharing. And it's going to be a pretty significant limitation to make his file sharing, which probably before went, you know, 10 times faster than his uh, connection to the Internet to now go, you know, a quarter the speed of his connection to the Internet. So you got to you've got to kind of look at that. You can. There, there is another way. And again, we're not going to get into it, but there's a way to say, hey, look, anything talking outside to an IP address outside of my local range. I want to limit, right? You could route only that stuff through this pipe, but anything, but it get it gets interesting. You, you got to, you know, exclude the gateway or include the gateway. It starts getting crazy, but, uh, but yeah, totally oh. doable, totally doable. And the final wrap up. I mean, this worked when, when I was a wee lad, my parents are like, you want, you want to communicate with the outside world with your BBS? Guess what you're doing? You're buying your own phone line, right? So maybe this is a time to, to you know, yeah. teach the, the lad, uh, you know, a little fiscal responsibility. And you got your own connection. If you saturate your bandwidth, that's your problem, not mine. So, again, you can see why I'm not a parent. But but yes. it could be a learning experience no, it's as far as not a bad idea. Yeah. To me, I mean, that's kind of unfair. I mean, you know, a kid hogging all the bandwidth for the household. Yep. I had the same issue when I was a kid and it was like, hey, you know, here, you know, you need your own phone line to do this. You can't tie up the house line. That, it's both of us. It's well, especially when we said, whatever. I want to run a bulletin board, mom well, and dad. And they're like, different. oh, well, that, that's sweet. Yeah. OK, you're buying your own phone line, if not more than one. <laughs> right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Which I think we both did. Yeah. yeah I, I bought two extra phone lines, a voice line and a data line. Yep. Yep. All right. Uh, OK, we have some follow ups from previous shows. We talked about uh Ethernet surge protection using the ProtectNet adapters, and our, uh, our our own Mr. X has some has some things to say. Hey, um, regarding the uh, power line and Ethernet surge suppression and whole house surge suppression, uh, we do have whole house surge suppression. It actually doesn't cost that much. Uh, we had it installed by the actual electric company, uh, and we had it we had it put in. Actually, we had a lightning strike. Near, very near us that took out a whole bunch of stuff. Um, regarding using the APC ProtectNet products uh, in between the Powerline Ethernet adapter, um, I wouldn't say that's overkill, mainly because um, I have, well, I've have in the past had problems with routers dying after a couple of years. Um, 
although I, I am my current router I've been using for about four and a half to five years now. Uh, and I think the reason why it's lasted this long is because now uh, the Ethernet line that comes out of the cable modem is going into a battery backup with Ethernet surge suppression, which is basically the same as, the, as that ProtectNet device just uh, tied into the, elect into the electrical ground uh, through that battery backup and you know, integrated inside of it. Um, so if, if you are highly worried about lightning, and if you are in a thunderstorm-prone area, um, like I said, I would recommend either the, the standalone apcprotect.net devices or just get yourself a battery backup that or, or even just a surge suppressor that has yeah. Ethernet data line protection um, just for that extra, you know, level of protection. I also do it because this way, you know, every major connection coming into my house that connects into my computer network is protected from surges by APC products. Um, so if, if anything ever does go wrong, there's a, uh, you know, they have, they'll have very little reason to not uh, honor the, the, their uh, insurance warranty claims. Anyway, this has been Mr. X. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, Mr. X. <laughs> yeah, he's you know, accepted it. He he's right. It, you know, APC does offer that that insurance warranty. Uh, they have I, I have filed claims with APC and Triplight. Uh, very similar claims. Obviously, it wasn't the same claim because it couldn't have been. Uh, it was two different pieces of hardware, two different well, times. Yeah. Oh, okay. Right. Uh, and uh, and I'll be honest. Triplight was a pain in the neck to deal with, and they were really, really strict about everything. I, I'm not saying that they were wrong, uh, but my experience with APC was exactly the opposite. It was customer first. They were really cool about everything. Uh, they said they basically said, look, we, we know that uh, our stuff was was doing its job, but uh, but. You know, we're going to cover it anyway. And and I think they were probably right. In the end, they kind of explained to me, they're like, no, look, you, you know, you had this one hole here in mm -hmm. the in the setup. And, uh, you know, the reality is that's probably where it came through. And I thought, oh, yeah, Jesus. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we're going to cover it anyway. So uh, so, you know, mm -hmm. AP, APC is is definitely definitely good for uh, for that stuff. Uh, obviously, you know, your mileage may vary. Uh, moving, jumping around on our agenda a little bit, John, while we're talking about Ethernet here. In I was going to, yeah, I wanted to jump ahead too. Yeah, in show 283, <laughs> we yeah. uh, we talked about an issue where someone noticed their Ethernet port coming alive and then going dead and then coming alive again. And we got a lot of email about this. Uh, it seems to be very common on all the i7 uh, machines. And yep. in fact... We had one listener, Anand, who went and checked out the machines at his local Apple store. Uh, maybe it wasn't Anand. I'm trying to think of who it was. There were a lot of emails that came in about this, but somebody actually went and checked out the machines at their local Apple store, and they're doing the same thing. So there's clearly a problem. Uh, if it's causing you grief, uh, if, you're no, if you're not connected via Ethernet, but uh, you're connected via Wi-Fi, the thing to do is to disable the Ethernet port, remove it, from uh don't, don't remove it from the machine we're not talking, talking to, to gut the uh, machine i'll make it inactive right but yeah Is go well go to system preferences uh network, network and highlight it go to uh i'm trying to think how to do this go to uh highlight the ethernet port and hit the minus sign uh and so it's just going to take it out of that current location it's not removing the drivers or anything oh it's just making really? it yeah that's that's the that's the way to uh to do it you can always add it back in later if you want just hit the plus sign choose ethernet port and and uh and it will come back but uh but no i'm just now, saying you you don't think inactive is sufficient or it's not Huh? No. Uh, I mean, you, 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 you. What do you mean by inactive? Inactive, and then you can mark an interface inactive without removing it from the. Uh, you can just highlight it and then go to the little tool menu, and then say, "What is it? Make service inactive without removing it." Huh. Okay. Um. Yeah. The, that. the thing is, I had a problem long ago, Dave. I think you remember yeah, it was a wake-up problem. And I solved it not by removing it. So what I'm I'm just suggesting. Yeah. Well, I was both asking, had you determined that it was that removing it definitely? Oh, well, I suppose removing it 
you know, is a bit jarring to people who don't want to remove things because then you have to add it back again at some point. Sure. Um, I'm suggesting making it inactive and that leaving it there yeah. may also, and I think I've had some people indicate that. I've, I've read about this as well, but but I agree with you that I believe it's the i7s and the i5s. Yeah. I think the iMac yeah. or, or multiple machines have this. So it sounds like it's a it's a network driver bug, you think, or I think a hardware? I do. I do. I think it's a, yeah, it's, it, I, let's hope it's not a hardware bug. Let's hope it's just a network driver bug. It seems like it is. I mean, it. It, it goes offline, it comes back online, and, and what uh, a couple of our listeners noticed was that it's going and re-getting uh, an IP address. So it's actually causing a DHCP uh. lookup every time, and, and there's no reason for this because it's not active. You know, it's, so it's right. something... And then the machine gets the weird two or three name if it hasn't could, existed. Uh, so it's be. causing all sorts of grief, I think. Yeah, it, yeah well, even if, it's, even if there's nothing plugged into it, there's no reason to go and do a DHCP lookup every 90 seconds or whatever it, it's... Right. <laughs> well, no, that's yeah, what that's it is. I think oh, it's every 70 seconds is what it was. Somebody sent us a YouTube video showing all the all the relevant things simultaneously, but, uh, but yeah, it, it's there's something going on. It seems like there was some little problem where perhaps the Ethernet port would not be um, active. Right. It, you know, even uh, if something was plugged in. And so, mm-hmm. you know, some engineer wrote some code and said, oh, well, every 70 seconds, just do a DHCP lookup. And if you get an address, we'll go active. You know, mm-hmm. and, and it, it solved the problem, but it was a, a bad shortcut, I think. So, uh, so, you know, that's. uh that's that's where we're at. I think it's time to wrap up, John. We're well over an hour here, and uh, oh my goodness, yeah, yeah. How uh, to get into? Oh, we already we talked already, about that, we so we don't have to talk about that. We can just say later. <laughs> well, I do. There's a oh no, there's a few think. things we got to talk about. You're right. That's right. So Michael Johnston from the We Have Communicators podcast converts this and all of our other shows to AA enhanced AAC for your interactive pleasure uh, so we'd like to thank him we'd like to thank cashfly c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y.com for the bandwidth getting the show from us to you we would like to thank our sponsors in the podcast marketplace these are ongoing sponsors of the show uh, the a2 desktop speakers from audio engine yo jimbo from barebone software pdf pen from smile notebook from circus ponies and uh and you know blog world expo is next month john mm. through september 15th you can get a 20 percent off and they, so you gotta act fast because it's the 13th now observer vip is the coupon code to use and we will see you next month in las vegas for blog world expo i am speaking uh actually doing a session on podcast sponsorships with one of our sponsors with gene mcdonald from smile oh so that will be nice. uh, yeah it'll, actually i think it'll be a packed house i think it's going to be a great session gene put this together and uh, and asked me to be a part of it but, uh, yeah yeah the topic again podcast advertising how to how to get and retain sponsors for your podcast yeah. 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 Somebody's making money doing this, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's great to have a sponsor actually, you know, be, be the one leading the charge on this session. Uh, well, they are most excellent sponsor. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, all through the Backbeat Media Podcast Network, of course. And I think that's it, John. We're out of here. Thanks so much for listening. As uh, as Anthony pointed out, we do have a premium option. We really appreciate those of you who have done that. If you haven't, 25 bucks, six months. Not only do you get the... Uh, extreme satisfaction of supporting your two favorite podcasters but you also get two extra episodes per month every month as long as you subscribe and and the one last thing dave i think we also offer tips well in all the shows on how to not get caught made up